Good morning, Harvest. How are you guys doing? Uh, you know, I talked to uh, Pastor Don Marston, who preached last week, and I asked him, I said, Don, you know, how was it up there? And he said, yeah, it was pretty good, really responsive crowd. Um, you know, my only complaint was, you know, half the body just looked very disheveled. You know, they were, they were like hardly, it looked like they hadn't taken showers in several days. They smelled like diesel. Uh, so I don't know what was going on there, but uh, I'm glad you guys all look look good today. And uh, I think we have our water back. I don't know. Uh, still touch and go. But I am honored to be here. My name is Barrett Jones. I'm an elder here. Um, my wife, uh, Katie, and I have been going here for several years. Uh, this is my first year as an elder. First time up here to preach in front of you guys. I've got two kids as well. And um, again, just am so excited to share with you what I feel like God has laid on my heart uh, as I've... Um, poured into the scriptures this week. So if you would, let's jump right into it. And uh, if you would stand for the reading of God's word, we're in Genesis 18, 16 through 33. I'll give you one second to get there. It's always a good sound hearing the pages turn. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may be, bring, Abraham, bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there, he answered. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we come before you today um, just grateful, grateful that we have this beautiful place to meet, to come before your word with fellow believers and unbelievers, and I just pray, Lord, um, that you would teach us from your word, that you'd reveal truth, maybe that we've never seen before. Um, Lord, that we would examine the word next to our lives and see the places where you convict us and where we can grow. 
Lord, we love you. I just pray that you'd speak through me today, Lord, and may you get all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So maybe you've read this passage before. It's, it's kind of a strange passage at first glance, right? You read it, and it, it really has the, the, the kind of language that you would expect to hear in a third world country marketplace, right? Where there's almost haggling going on, right? A, a negotiation between two parties, uh, and that's a little unusual. So I have a, uh, I have a three-year-old son whose name is Anderson, and he's a lot of fun. He's, he's a blast, but he's also a firstborn, so he has an innate desire at all times to be in charge. Does anyone else have a firstborn son that, like that? I know I was. And when he turned three, he turned into a major haggler. He loves to haggle with me and, and try to strike up a deal at all times. And his favorite phrase right now is he says, here's the deal, daddy. Here's the deal. He loves to try to tell me what the deal is. And another thing about Anderson is he's very passionate. He's very passionate. In fact, my wife asked me with our second child to maybe, uh, one of the things I prayed for Anderson consistently was that he would be passionate. And my wife asked me, maybe with this child, would you pray a little bit less for passion? Uh, because he's a very passionate kid. He, he's very into things. He gets obsessed. We just recently exited a very intense Lightning McQueen uh, phase for the movie Cars. And now we're entering, I believe, a dinosaur phase. Maybe your kids have had a dinosaur phase. But uh, man, it's, it's, uh, it's off to a very intense start uh, for his love for dinosaurs. So the other day, my wife and I were at Costco and, you know, we were kind of separate and we were doing our, doing our own thing. Uh, my wife, she loves the center section. You know, I, I really stay away from the center section. Uh, I keep on the edges where the samples are. That's kind of my, my territory. But she called me over the center section and she called me to an area where the books were. And there's a lot of children's books. Uh, by the way, if you're a grandparent, a lot of the kind of books that you should never buy, and that's anything that makes noise. That's a, that's a big no-no. So uh, she calls me over and there are two dinosaur books on the table here. And she says, look, I found these two dinosaur books. Anderson would love these. Okay. So there are two books. And the first book is a book that, that this was my vote. Eight dinosaurs, eight buttons that make sound, eight pages. All right, and we're talking about core dinosaurs here, okay? You got a T-Rex, you got a Triceratops, Velociraptor, you know, the dinosaurs that every, every kid should know about. And then there's the second book, the one my wife wants to get because she knows my son's passion. And this book has 39 buttons and it has 32 pages and 30 dinosaurs, okay? I don't even know they're worth 30 dinosaurs. Uh, have you guys ever heard of the Masiakosaurus or the Majungasaurus? I hadn't either until, this, until I started reading this book every night. It's a, there's a lot, of different, uh, a lot of different books in here, a lot of different dinosaurs. And so every night we read the Bible together at bedtime, and, uh, but, but then we always get to read after we read the Bible. He gets to pick one book he wants to read. And so, you know, I, I, as, a, as the imperfect, impatient parent I am, you know, a book with 32 pages, 39 sounds, you can imagine to read the whole thing, it takes about 45 minutes. And so I said, all right, all right, buddy, I'm not going to read the whole book to you, but I will read five pages of your dinosaur book to you. And he said, no, 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 no. Here's the deal, daddy, 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 daddy. No, 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 no. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read three pages. And I said, sold. Three pages it is, son. So he's a haggler, but he's not very good at it yet, thankfully. He's got a long way to go in his haggling. But there's a lot more to this text than just haggling. There's incredible theological depth here in this text that the Lord showed me as I was preparing this week. Abraham's really doing a deep theological exploration of who God is. It's the first extended prayer in the Bible. Pretty cool that we see in the pages of Scripture. I just want to pause for a second and say that, man, I, I felt very, very unworthy to be up here 
teaching you guys about prayer. It's an area in my life where I really want to grow, um, where I have grown a lot, uh, but where I have a long way to go. And so understand that when I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself most of all, and the Lord has used this text greatly in my life already. Uh, I'm also grateful to uh, the unbelievable uh, staff we have here that have helped. I've, I've gotten five or six guys to help me come through this. I've listened to many, many sermons, so much wisdom out there available, Tim Keller, many other pastors that I drew different things from. And so I, I just, uh, I, I'm very excited because this has been a transformational couple weeks in my life as I've been preparing for this text. So let's, let's jump right into it. Verse 16, then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. So just a little on-ramp here for you. If you are here last week, uh, we had this great scene uh, where these three heavenly visitors come to visit Abraham. And they visit Abraham and Sarah and they deliver the news. Now Abraham is 99. Remember he was 75 when he first started work, walking with the Lord. So it's been 24 years. They deliver some, some big news to Abraham and Sarah that uh, a year from now, they're gonna return and Sarah will be pregnant with a baby. Pretty big. Uh, and so they, they have that exchange there and, and there's actually some, some laughter that takes place that was talked to a lot about. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Don did a great job of covering that. Uh, but here we have Abraham, the ultimate host who's hosted these men. And by the way, as the text goes on, we, we discover, this will be important this week, that two of these men are angels and one of them is actually God the Son or the second person of the Trinity. All right, so how do we know this? There's a, a lot of theological discussion about Christophanies or, or appearances of God uh, in the Old Testament. Most, most people agree that when you see God appear in the Old Testament, it is God the second person or God the Son or, the la- or later who we would know as Jesus, John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. All right, so we haven't seen God the Father, but we have seen God the Son. And so here he is, Abraham is a great host and he's walking these guys out of town and he's having a conversation with uh, these three men as Abraham. And so 17 through 19, it's, uh, it's, it's funny that the kindness here the Lord shows to Abraham uh, where, where he essentially says, uh, and we've all done this in conversation. He turns to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm not really sure if I should tell you this or not. Uh, we've all done that before to people. We should say, I don't know if I should tell you this. And what do you always do in a conversation? You always tell them. Have you ever started a sentence like that? I've tried many times with my wife to start a sentence and not finish it, but she will not let me. So uh, you, uh, you st- you, if you say that to someone, you're going to tell them, right? So why do you do it? Why does God do this? Why does he act like he's not sure? So you know, essentially what he's telling Abraham, he says, what I'm about to tell you is information that not everyone is privy to, but I'm telling you because I trust you. God is placing his trust in Abraham. He's again, just reaffirming the blessing and the trust that he has in Abraham to carry forth righteousness and justice to the entire world and to demonstrate God's character. So what does he tell him? The Lord tips him off for what he's about to do. He says, the outcry is so great that I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if it is indeed like I've heard it is, which we'll get to that in a second. But first I wanna camp out on this word outcry. Outcry is a word that has a lot of connotation uh, in in Hebrew. It has a a connotation that grave injustices are being committed by the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It also implies that oppression, and there is oppression going on against the poor and the needy. Several of the prophets actually reference this. Ezekiel 16, 49 says, behold, This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and the needy. This is actually the same terms, the outcry term is used in Exodus when it's talking about 
the people of God in Egypt in slavery. It's the same, same connotation there of outcry because suffering is going on. Injustice is taking place. Right? And God hears and he sees these suffering people. It's really not surprising though, right? Every reference we have to Sodom is overwhelmingly negative. The first reference we have in Genesis 13, we heard that preached a few weeks ago, where Abraham and a lot are dividing up and they're deciding which way to go. It even says there in the text in Genesis 13, Lot chose this way and that he knew that was near the, the uh, town of Sodom and the people of Sodom were exceedingly wicked, right? So there was no doubt about the type of people that were there. And, and then we see in chapter 19, which will be next week, but you know, sorry to ruin it for you, but you've had 4,000 years to read it, so I don't feel too bad. <laughs> we see what they do to the, the two angels that go into town and they try to forcibly remove them from Lot's home and violate them. It was a dark place, right? And we need to address it. There's a word in our language we still use to this day. There's, in fact, there's a crime, a law on many books in many states that still comes from this city. Sodomy, right? It's a horrible word. I understand that. But I think it probably gives us the, the a kind of idea of the things that were taking place in this wicked city. Their wickedness was certainly very great. And the Lord heard their outcry. I don't want to spend much time on this, but I, I do think it's very important for us to pause for a second. And there are a lot of people in our world today that would say, you know what? I, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in God, but I don't believe in a God who judges. I believe in a merciful God. The God I believe in, he is merciful. Tim Keller says, if you have a God who never judges, judges, you don't have a merciful God. Because if God is hearing this outcry and he never acts, is he truly merciful? Can God really be merciful if he doesn't help the oppressed? No, he can't be, right? These are not opposites. We, have, we serve a God who is both merciful and just. He is both. By the way, have you ever been offended by something you read in the Bible? Have you ever read something in the Bible or have you ever seen something that God done, has done and it's offended you before? That's great. You know why it's good? That means you didn't make God up, right? There are many people that serve a God who is a figment of their own imagination that they made up. That God never offends them. He always does what they think is right. That's no God at all. We know that. The fact that God offends you is because our God is real. He's real. If you serve a God who never disagrees with you, you better watch out and figure out which God you're really serving. So verse 21, uh, a question that comes to mind is why does God go down physically, right? It almost, if, again, if you didn't know any other passage in the Bible, it would imply that the Lord actually had to go down to see, uh, to see what was happening so he could really determine whether there was wickedness or not. Does he need to go down to see? No, of course he does not go down. Of course he doesn't need to go. He doesn't need to do it. He could easily see from where he is in heaven. He doesn't need to go, but he does it as a kindness to us. We serve a God who is, has a history of coming down to commune with us, right? Over and over in scripture, our God comes down. We just saw he came down to comfort Hagar, right? Later in the Old Testament, he will come down to stand with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. He comes down to wrestle with Jacob, he comes down over and over until finally he comes down as a man, as a baby, born in a stable in Bethlehem. Does he need to do that? No. I think the, we're missing the point if we see this and we think, oh, this, this is proof that the Lord really has limited power and omniscience. No. The point is, 
the creator of the universe, cares about us. He wants to come down and be with us. What a kindness he's showing us here that he would want to come down and commune with Abraham and have an unbelievable conversation that's about to unfold. A great teacher once told me that when God asks a question, he's never asking that question to learn. He's asking it to teach. And so here God is going to teach us something because he has come down and he invites Abraham, right? They're having this conversation and you see there in verse 21, it says, and if not, I will know. And then verse 22, he sends the other two men away. So we have this great scene here where Abraham and God, God the son are sitting there. He's inviting Abraham to intercede on behalf of the people of Sodom. He's inviting Abraham to be a priest, right? A priest is a word now we think of with fancy collar and everything. A priest in this day and age was a bridge. It was a bridge between an unholy people and a righteous God. And the priest would attempt to find a way to get the unrighteous people there. And so he invites Abraham to intercede on the behalf. The image I have here is of a lawyer approaching a judge. I've always loved legal dramas, all right? When I was a kid, I loved Law and Order. Maybe you guys have seen one of the now 20 versions of that show. Uh, In fact, um, the other, a few years ago, my wife and I were in uh, New York City and we were driving a cab and I I said, stop the cab, stop the cab. My wife was like, "What, what is wrong with you? And we got out of the cab and I walked out and I said, Katie, do you know where we are right now? That is the New York Supreme Court. Those are the steps that Jack McCoy walked up many, many times, okay? To which my wife, my wife responded, who is Jack McCoy, okay? If you don't know, that's the main character in, uh, in Law and Order. Uh, but but I, I've always loved it. I've always loved the, the idea. I've always been really jealous of Seth. You know, he gets to be a lawyer. It's really cool. And, uh, you know, it, I love the idea, and I've always wanted to say permission to approach the bench, right? So if you, if you ever watched any legal drama, before the lawyer walks up to the judge, he has to ask for permission. So he says, permission to approach the bench. And that's the feeling I, I get when I read this text, that Abraham's sitting here and he asks for permission to approach God. And he approaches the bench and he has this great conversation with God and he draws near to the Lord. I love those two words in the text, draws near. That's cool, that's a great image. So my first question for you today are you drawing near to the Lord? Are you drawing near to the Lord? Is your life marked by intimate prayer? People who know you, do they know you as a praying person? Somebody who really spends time walking and talking with the Lord intimately. I, I, I joked this week, prayer is not a spiritual gift. It's not a list of an optional thing we can do to get to know the Lord, right? If we want to know the Lord, if we want to grow, to become more like him, we must draw near to him and spend time in the word every single day. You might say, well, man, I just, I'm too busy. I do not have time to intimately pray. Okay, am I the only one who every Sunday when I'm sitting in church, Apple sends me a notification to let me know how many hours that week I have spent on my phone a day. Does anyone else get that notification during church? Maybe you get it some other time, okay? You can check it on your phone. If you wanna be depressed, you can go ahead and do it. But the average American spends somewhere between three to four hours a day on their iPhone. Three to four hours. Let's just say you're on the low end of that. Let's just say you're three hours a day on your phone, okay? That means over the next 50 years, six years you will spend staring at your phone. So don't tell me you don't have have time to draw near, right? When we come before the the seat of God, not that God needed any data trackers, but we got lots of data trackers now that tell us just how much time we waste drawing near to other things right? Not drawing near to the Lord. 
if you're a believer and you feel like something's missing in your life, man, I'm a believer, but I just, something's missing. I, 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 I'm not growing. I don't have a good relationship with the Lord. My first question to, be, to you would be, are you drawing near to the Lord? Are you carving out time in your day to draw near to the Lord? Build your schedule around the time you draw near to the Lord, not the other way around. Don't try to work it into your schedule. Build it around. I, uh, one, one habit I've tried to create is that I try, I'm not always successful, but I try not to look at any screens for that day until I've had time to draw near to the Lord. Are you struggling with something? Do you have an addiction that's weighing you down, a sin struggle, pornography, addiction, substance, food, whatever it is? My first question to me would be, are you drawing near to the Lord? Are you drawing near to him? Is your marriage in trouble? Are you drawing near to the Lord? That's the first step to any solution for a believer is drawing near to the Lord and engaging the power of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. I hope you are drawing near to the Lord daily. <clears throat> you know, Abraham draws near, but how does he do it? How does he draw near, right? Let's figure out, because we want to be like Abraham. We want to have this same kind of intimate prayer life that we see Abraham having. So what do we do? Let's examine Abraham. There are five things that Abraham does to draw near, because he's drawing near in a physical sense, but we also see just this spiritual nearness that Abraham has when he comes before the Lord. Five things. The first one is Abraham's prayer is a familiar prayer. Number one, Abraham's prayer is a familiar prayer. And I'm, I'm sorry, uh, it plagues me as a former Baptist that these all do not start with the same letter. So I apologize if you're a former Baptist like I am. They start with different letters. But look at how aggressive Abraham's prayer is. Look how intimate it is, right? One commentator said, Abraham was a man who wouldn't take yes for an answer. You might look at this as a Christian and you might say, this is inappropriate. The Lord keeps giving and giving and Abraham keeps asking for more and more. He's almost pestering the Lord, right? Do you see that? You see the way he's talking to God? Look at the way he addresses him. This is so cool. He calls him judge of all the earth. That's a pretty majestic name. Where do you think he learned that from? We always talk about how Old Testament characters, they didn't have the benefit of the New Testament. Abraham didn't have the New Testament or the Old Testament. Who taught him that God was judge of all the earth? God taught him that. Because for 24 years now, he's been walking with God day after day, drawing near to him, learning about his character. Right? Do you see this? You see this intimacy he has with the Lord? He knows the character of the Lord. He bases his argument for the people of Sodom on God's character not on his own logic. You know, uh, my wife and I have been married for about five years now. And sometimes we joke, we look at, you know, pictures, we have a picture of our wedding in, the, in our hallway. And sometimes I look at that picture and I'm th I think, I hardly knew her. You know, we, you know, we did it for 17 months, we got married. And if you've been married for 30 years right now, you're probably thinking, hey man, just wait, you hardly, you hardly know her now, you know? And that's, that's the reality that every year that goes by, you, you know your spouse in a, hopefully in a, a deeper, different way. Is your relationship with the Lord like that? Can you look back five, 10, 15 years at your walk with the Lord and think, man, I hardly knew him. I hardly knew him 15 years ago. I served him and I was walking after him, but I hardly knew him because daily I've been coming to him. I've been drawing near and our relationship has exploded. Number one, it's a familiar prayer. Number two, it, Abraham's prayer is a humble prayer. It's a humble prayer. We may be tempted here to confuse Abraham's persistence and his familiarity as pride. But no, 
Keep reading. Keep reading and see what Abraham says in verse 27. Look what he calls himself. He says, I who am but dust and ashes. Man, I love that. I love that text. I who am but dust and ashes. Abraham is maybe walked as close, if not closer with the Lord than anyone in human history. And he calls himself dust and ashes. Someone once told me the true test of humility in a man's heart is how much time he spends drawing near the Lord. How much time he really spends in prayer. You can fake Bible study. You can fake coming to church. You can even fake public prayer. You can't fake your one-on-one time with the Lord. If you truly understand your need, your dependence on God, you will draw near to the Lord daily. That's a test of your humility. If you think you're a humble person, look at your life. How much time do you really spend drawing near to the Lord? That will teach you a lot about who you are. A humble person understands who they are in the sight of God. See, every other religion in the world has some sort of delineation between good and evil people, right? There's something you do to earn your way to God. There's some acts you perform, something you go through to make yourself righteous. And so we divide good versus evil. And in fact, unfortunately, many people in our churches would probably describe it the same way. When I've witnessed to people who've been in church their whole life, they say things like, yeah, you know, I think my good outweighs my bad. I'm, I'm going to church, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. No, that's completely wrong. That's not what the Bible says. It's not a division between good and evil. It's a division between the humble and the proud. The humble understand. They understand that even their best righteousness is like filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. They understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They understand that in front of a holy God, they can't stand without the hope of Jesus. So it's a familiar prayer. It's a humble prayer. Number three is it's a reverent prayer prayer. It's a reverent prayer. Verse 30 and verse 32, twice Abraham says, let not the Lord be angry. Abraham understands the risk he's taking. He understands that by going before the Lord, he's taking his life into his hands, right? He's seen what has happened. He's seen God's power. He's seen what he can do. He understands the risk he's taking by interceding, by priesting on behalf of Sodom, a people who certainly was wicked. He gets it. Yet still, he comes before on behalf of God. Do you draw near to the Lord reverently? Do you say your prayers at night or in the morning? Do you just say them? Or do you draw near before the Lord reverently? Dear God, that's how most people start their prayers. Dear God, it's a great way to start your prayer. Do you think about who you're talking to? God, dear God, the creator of the entire universe It's a great exercise sometime. If you ever want to think about this, read Revelation 4 sometime. Read Revelation 4 and read the scene, the throne room scene. As John is seeing this vision, there's these four creatures that are bowing down to the Lord, 24 elders. They're all casting their crowns in front of the Lord. And it's just light and majestic. And everyone, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's an amazing scene. Some of you right now are very shaken because you thought, that Phillips, Craig, and Dean actually came up with that line in Revelation song. But no, they did not. That's, uh, that's, from, that's from Revelation 4. Sometimes when I pray, I, I spend the first portion of my prayer just thinking about who I'm talking to and going through the characteristics of God and thinking about who I'm addressing. When Jesus died on the cross, many things happened. Well, one thing that happened is the Holy of Holies tore from top to bottom. 
We no longer have to go through a priest. All of us, we can go directly to the Father. We can be in his presence and talk to the Lord one-on-one. So think about it when you're addressing God, when you're drawing near, address the Lord reverently. Understand, you can sense Abraham's reverence before the Lord. Number four, Abraham's prayer is a missional prayer. It's a missional prayer. I, I, I love this part. I think it's so neat. This is the only time in the entire Bible where we see someone interceding on behalf of a pagan culture. Very cool. When I say pagan, I mean someone, a, a culture who's worshiping false gods. Right? We see many times where prophets intercede on behalf of Judah or Israel. Maybe they've lost their way. This is the only time where we see anyone intercede on behalf of a pagan culture. He does it for Sodom. You think Abraham knows what God's going to find in Sodom? Yeah, he knows. You think he's, you, think he's, you know, when he says he's going to go down and see, he, he, he knows what he's going to find in Sodom. He's been there. He's seen the wickedness of these people, yet still Abraham goes before God and he intercedes for Sodom. You know what would have been a much easier prayer? Would have made a lot more sense. Probably, maybe the prayer I would have prayed. I would have said, God, you know what? You're right. Those guys, I'm going to tell you before you get on there, they're pretty bad, okay? I've seen it. I've heard it. But could you do me one favor? I just want you to get my family out. I've got Lot. I've got his wife, two daughters. Can you just save them? Can you spare those guys? Just get them out. That's a simple prayer, right? That's a prayer like many of us probably would pray in this situation. But he doesn't. And this is part of what makes Abraham's prayer so special. He doesn't. He intercedes on behalf of the entire city. Maybe it's because he was a pagan for 75 years. For 75 years, he was in Ur, the Chaldeans, presumably maybe worshiping false gods, when the Lord, out of his grace and mercy, plucked him out and chose him to start his line. He knows he didn't deserve that. He's seen God's mercy in his life over and over and over as he's messed up, and he's seen the way the Lord has sustained him. And so Abraham has compassion. He has a heart for these people, these wicked people in Sodom. Are your prayers missional? Are your prayers really missional? Let's start here. Do you routinely pray for lost people that you know? Do you routinely pray for lost people? What about people who wrong you? Do you pray for people who wrong you, who offend you? What about people you don't like? You say, oh, there's nobody I don't like. I like everybody. Sure there are. What about the guy who gets on your nerves, the family member, the coworker who just bothers you? Do you pray for that guy or do you scoff at him? What about, let's take it a step further. What about the people you see on TV celebrating homosexuality and parades? What about the people you see marching to celebrate killing babies? What's your reaction when you see that? Do you pray for those people or do you scoff at them? Do you have a heart for the lost? Do you have a heart for the world? Abraham did. Abraham had a heart for the world. He had a heart for the lost because he knows he didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve for God to pluck him out of her. He knows his sin is just as deep as these sodomites in some way. He knows. Do you know that? I grew up in church my entire life. Can't remember a time where I didn't go. I had great Christian parents. I'm grateful for that. Many of you, maybe many of you did too. I think if I'm honest, sometimes there's a part of me that feels like, you know what? My son really wasn't that bad. If God was going to save anybody, it might as well have been me. Right? 
I went to church. I was there. I was in the right place at the right time for God to find me. I deserve God's grace. That's a dangerous way to think. That's certainly not how Abraham thinks, and it's certainly not how God thinks. And read the Bible over and over and over. God uses unlikely people with deep, deep sin who understand their desperate need for him. They understand that their righteousness is filthy rags. You could have a hundred examples, but look no further than Paul, maybe the greatest Christian of all time. You know where Paul got to start? Killing Christians. He was holding the coats when they stoned Stephen. Imagine that. Imagine if they had the kind of news service we had today. And you turn on the news and you say, hey, this is the guy, he's, he's leading the charge to kill Christians. Would we think that was going to be the guy that God was going to choose to bring the gospel to the Gentiles? No. We wouldn't think that. So are your prayers missional? Do you really have a heart for the lost? Thank the Lord that God does. God has a heart for the lost. I hope you do too. And last of all, Abraham's prayer is a mature prayer. This is the part of this text that really has consumed my thoughts this week. It's, it's an amazing, amazing passage that I, never, I didn't initially see the richness of the truth until the Lord gave me this text and I started delving through it. The secret to Abraham's prayer life is his incredible theological depth, his incredible understanding of who God is. See, Abraham, he identifies the cosmic dilemma, all right, the cosmic dilemma that you and I still face, that every person faces. What is the cosmic dilemma? The first part of it is that if there is no God who loves righteousness and justice, there is no hope for the world, right? We all know that innately. We see the hurt, we see the pain, we see the suffering, the destruction, the evil in the world. And we know as believers, the only hope for our world is a just God who will one day return and set things right. We know that. Abraham knew that. He'd been walking with the Lord for 24 years. He knew the only hope for the world was a just God. But Abraham also realizes that if God does indeed love righteousness and justice that much, What hope does he have? What hope do you and I have? What hope do we have before a righteous God? Who can stand before God? No one. My son, Anderson, back to him. (laughs) And you have kids. They're just an unbelievable uh, source for metaphors. Uh, He is a very passionate kid, as I mentioned. And with passion often comes discipline. Uh, hopefully. Uh, He's had to be disciplined many times. He's very, very strong-willed. And so we we have a lot of different forms of discipline. My wife is unbelievable uh, disciplinarian, and, um, you know, we both are very involved in his discipline. And so he talked disrespectfully to my wife. He does that often. And uh, he had to go to timeout. So he has a chair in the corner, and he has to go sit there, and he does not like doing that. He does not like being removed from the situation but he has a little clock that we set and he knows it's blue so you can see it and until it, until it dings, he cannot get up from that chair. Because if he gets up, he has an additional punishment. And there's my one-year-old, Eliza, who, if you have a girl, you know, she's perfect uh, compared to my son. But she's actually not perfect. If you ever wondered about sin nature, have a kid and you'll see uh, that they're not perfect. Uh, you don't have to teach them how to sin. 
She, she knows even at one that she is not supposed to open the cabinets and play with the stuff in there. And so before she opens the cabinet, she always kind of looks around. And her favorite cabinet is the Tupperware cabinet. Kids love Tupperware for whatever reason. She loves going in there, getting all the Tupperware out and just banging it on the floor and having fun. And so she does this on this very day. She goes and gets in the Tupperware cabinet. She pulls out all the Tupperware. And Anderson, from his timeout spot, he's witnessing this. And he's crying out for justice. <laughs> he's saying, Mom, Dad, she's opening the Tupperware cabinet. She's, she's doing it. Eliza, stop. Stop doing that. Stop doing that. And so what does he do? He just can't help it anymore. He leaves his spot and he goes over and intervenes. And he says, no, no, Eliza. And he, you know, pushes her down way too hard and shuts the cabinet. And I come in there and say, buddy, what, what are you doing? You can't push her down. You can't leave time out. You know that. I say, daddy, but she was playing with the Tupperware. He's demanding justice for Eliza. But what's the problem? He's missing. If, we, if his parents are just and they give justice to Eliza, what are they also going to do? They're also going to judge him for his sin. That's the problem we all face. That's the cosmic dilemma. And so Abraham sees this. He understands the dilemma. He understands what is forth between the people of Sodom. He also knows from experience how, God, how merciful God is. We've talked about it. He plucked him out of a pagan godless culture and he chose him to be the ambassador of righteousness, of his character. But Abraham's messed up a bunch. He's messed up. Have you been listening to the other sermons? He's made a bunch of mistakes. Right? He, he sells his wife, he gives his wife into a harem for a king twice. I'm not sure my wife would give me a second chance if I did that once. I think, think I'd be out. Right? He takes matters into his own hands. He sleeps with a servant, trying to, he said, oh, oh God, I'm never going to have a baby with, with uh, Sarah, so I'm just going to have a baby with, with Hagar. Right? He messes up time after time. But what do we see here? Here he is walking with God. God keeps coming back to him and keeps loving him, keeps forgiving him, keeps having grace, keeps having mercy. And so this is amazing. Don't miss this. Abraham comes up with a solution to this dilemma. It's the first time this is in the Bible. It's a solution that you're going to be very familiar with. He comes up with a solution because he knows the character of God. He says, oh God, since you love righteousness so much, I know how much you love righteousness. I've been with you. I've seen you. I know you're a righteous and just God. Since you love it so much, do you think it would be possible that for the righteousness of the few, you would pardon the sins of the many? Do you think it would be possible that on behalf of the righteous, you would forgive the many? And you can see him. He's working out this theory 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Yes. God, every time, does something amazing. He says, yes, 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 yes. And every time Abraham asks, the Lord keeps showing his mercy has no bounds. Yes, yes, he would do that. Have you ever played the game 20 questions before? I love that game. It's a, it's a great, simple game. If you've never played it, it's very simple. You think of an object, a person plays her thing, in your head, and the other person has 20 yes or no questions to try to get there. And if you ever played that game before, if you've ever been the one who's answering the questions, who has the object in their mind, there's always one question that the guesser asks. There's a question where you know they're onto it. They found the path. They're going to get this answer right. And that's the sense you have here. 
Remember the whole Old Testament, it whispers, something's coming. Someone's coming. Someone is coming. Right? And we see it right here. We see it played out. Except we have an advantage. We know something Abraham didn't know. We can go before God and we can ask him another question. We can say, oh God, you love righteousness and mercy so, righteousness and justice so much. Would it be possible? Would it be possible that for one man, you would pardon the sins of the many? And God says, yes, if it's the right man. He says, yes. For those who trust in that man's righteousness instead of their own, I will pardon them. He says, yes. What a beautiful, beautiful picture this is here. Remember, who is Abraham talking to? He's talking to the second person of the Trinity. He's talking to God the Son. He's having this conversation with Jesus. He's asking, he's not Jesus yet. I, I want to make sure I get this because there's a lot of theology there. He's, got, he's having this conversation with God the Son. And he's asking him, he's, got, he's like, I got this idea. Do you think this would work? And can you imagine God the Son, he's sitting there and he's saying, yes, Abraham, I do think it would work. In fact, keep watching. <clears throat> keep watching. Someday, many years from now, it's gonna be me. It's gonna be me. I'm gonna be the one. See, Abraham, he's found this great path. He's found a path through this cosmic problem. But he's got one issue. He didn't have anyone to walk it. There's nobody righteous. He stops at 10. Why does he do it? There's a lot of different theories on why he stops at 10. Maybe, maybe he realized that God's mercy has no bounds and it's far greater than he ever could have imagined. Or maybe he realized he didn't have anyone righteous. There weren't 10 righteous men. Abraham did an unbelievable job of being a priest for the people of Sodom. But what happens at the end? Sodom's destroyed. Sodom gets destroyed. Again, I hate to read it for you, but God wipes it off the face of the earth there. He does spare Lot and his family out of his kindness and mercy. But Sodom gets destroyed. But we have a perfect high priest. Abraham risked his life. Jesus gave his life for you and for me. There will be a different conversation that will happen if you're trusting in Christ. Jesus will go before the Father and he'll say, oh God, judge of all the earth, shall you not do what is just? Will you punish these wicked again as I have already paid the price for their sin? You know what God will say? No, I will not. Paid in full. For those who trust in Christ, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who trust in his righteousness and not their own. This is the first step to drawing near to God. If you wanna draw near to God, the first step is you have to understand you are so wicked that God had to send his son to die for you. But you're so loved that he was glad to do it. You are so loved that God was glad to send his only son. The perfect act of righteousness 
to live a perfect life, to hang on a tree for you. Abraham gets it. He sees it. He understands because he knows God's character. He sees a way through, but he knows he doesn't have anyone to walk it. Jesus walked it. He walked it for you and he walked it for me. I want to ask you today, have you ever encountered God? We don't get much narrative after this. We don't see what happens to Abraham after this is said. But one thing we can be certain of, Abraham did not leave this place unchanged. When you encounter God, your life changes. Have you ever encountered God? Make today the day you encounter God. Make today the day you trust in God's righteousness and not your own. Make today the day you confess to the Lord that you're a sinner. and There's no hope for you in your own works, but that you're trusting in the perfect righteousness that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. And if you're already a believer, draw near. Not just once, but again and again and again, over and over and over, day after day after day, draw near to God. And I can assure you, you will not leave unchanged. Let's pray. Dear Father, Oh, Lord, we confess our sin, Lord, as we stand before you. We're overcome by the weight of our sin and our unrighteousness before a holy God. But, Lord, you found a way through, you made a way through, and you sent your son, Jesus, to live a perfect life. Lord, we proclaim that we're relying on his righteousness and not our own. Lord, I pray for every member, person in this room right now that they would draw near to you, that their life would be marked by prayer. And we know that when they draw near to you, they will not leave your presence unchanged. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.